Amen. First Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 9 through 15. We're going to read up to 15 together, and then I'm going to close this off and read verses 16 through 17. I'll be uh, referencing it in today's text, but we won't uh, be dealing with it until next week. Amen. The precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, matchless, majestic word of God reads. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong text. I I like the last sermon so much that I went back to it, amen? Everybody woke? All right. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. (laughs) You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And verse 16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we just thank you for the blessing of being able to go to your word. I thank you for this, your people who have been called by your name, set aside for your work to show off your beauty. I pray, Father God, for that person here today whose uh, heart may be cold and whose heart may not know you, that you would break through that stony heart, bring your light, bring your truth, bring your salvation, bring clarity, oh Father God, in order that they would be saved from the day of calamity. I pray for the believer, Father God, that you would use this sermon and this message to help them to be motivated to love you, Father God, with their whole heart, mind, and soul, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity and allow me to speak in the Spirit. When the Spirit said speak and how he says speak, uh, allow me to do that, Father God, and when he says shut up, allow me to do that. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. In the name of our Lord, there is a a new phenomenon that is spreading across America, and it is the phenomenon of adult summer camps. That's right, adult summer camps. Just like you send your young one to a summer camp, uh, it's a phenomenon of an adult summer camp. And adults pay anywhere from $195 up to spend three days to a week in a remote location, reliving their childhood. They play tug-of-war, they race, and they do all the things that a child would do at a summer camp. Most adults who go to these summer camps say that they go because they just really weren't ready to grow up, and they wanted to be reminded of what it was like to be young again. Across America, there was over 400 adult summer camps this year alone in the summer. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, Christians who should be spiritually mature, who should be spiritually growing up. And he is writing this letter to tell them to grow up, to say that they should no longer be spiritual babies, But it's now time for them to bear fruit in Christ and live with maturity. In the previous section, the Apostle Paul uses two powerful analogies 
or metaphors in order to get this point across. The first metaphor that he uses is a, a metaphor of an infant. The second metaphor that he uses is a metaphor of a farmer. Well, today, in order to, to call this church to grow up, he's going to use a, a we're going to look at a, a, a third metaphor, a different metaphor, and that is a metaphor of a building, a metaphor of a building. Now, when he's using this metaphor, he is speaking of the church. Now, why does he use the metaphor of a building? I believe that he does it for two main reasons. The first reason is he's pointing to a building in order to point to the building's unity. A building is unified. It is knit together. It is built together. The second reason is because of, uh, of the building is to, to be dwelled. Uh, someone is supposed to dwell in a building. And just as a natural building is made in order that people would use it and dwell in it, so have we been saved as the church. We've been saved by the Holy Spirit, and at the moment of salvation, we become indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And now we are God's temple, we are God's house, we are God's building. But this illustration would have been a, a powerful illustration for the church in Corinth in their day. Because this was a blooming city. This was a growing city. It was a metropolitan area that was becoming more and more important to Rome. And as his congregants were gathering together each Sunday, they would have been passing construction sites of great buildings that were in the process of being built. So this was a, a fresh illustration for them. Back then in the first century, they didn't have all, uh, uh, when, they, when a building was constructed, it didn't go up overnight like it does today. When we see a sign and a lot has been, been bought, and then we see construction workers happen, I mean, two to four years, a major building can be erected. But back then, if a building was going to begin to be erected, it would uh, take probably five, 10, 15 years because of the lack of resources and technology. So Paul points to the church as a building in order so that they will be able to connect with the spiritual truths that he's about to lay forth. And the first thing he wants them to understand is that this building, the church, it belongs to God. The church belongs to God. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field God's building. He says the church belongs to God. We're God's building. And that's important for us to realize. It's important for a pastor to realize that the people of God does not belong to him. The people of God are God's people. Some pastors that I, I talk to, they, they, they seem to be caught up in the fact that that they are the pastor of the church, and they major on that as if the church belongs to them. But we also want to be reminded that this building also doesn't belong to the members of the church. A local church doesn't belong to the pastor, and a local church, as well as a universal church, doesn't belong to the members. The local church belongs to God which means that God is the chief engineer, the chief designer. He's the one that lays the blueprint, and we, both the pastor and the members of the body of Christ, are the ones who follow the blueprint that is laid. We don't have to create a blueprint. It's already been made. For the building is God's. But Paul goes on in verse number 10 to show us that not only is this building, the church, God's, but he also wants to make sure that the church of Corinth understands the contribution that God has allowed him to make in Corinth. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So look at what Paul says. Paul, according to Acts chapter 18, uh, went to Corinth, and while in Corinth, he stayed there for about a year and a half. And while he was there, he began to preach in the synagogues on Saturday. 
and he was a tent maker for a while, and he was just preaching about Jesus, preaching about Jesus, and people began to give their lives to, to the Lord. There was a couple there that was helping him, Aquila and Priscilla, and they came alongside the Apostle Paul, and they helped start a church there. In fact, they were so bold that right next to the Jewish synagogue, once they were no longer welcome there, they started a house church next door to the Jewish synagogue. Paul labored there for a year and a half, and by God's grace, the church of Corinth began to grow. And Paul is pointing to the fact here, he says, according to God's grace, and he's letting them know that what has been done in Corinth is not a result of him. He said in the previous voice, verse, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And again, he points to God's grace because they were treating him like a celebrity. And he's saying, I don't want you to treat me like a celebrity. I want you to understand that I'm just doing what God called me to do. And what did God give me the role to do? Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. The apostle Paul's job was to lay the foundation of the church in Corinth. It was to get things started, to get things going on the right way. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this powerful analogy, anticipating what the Lord wants to work on our hearts with today. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2 because this is a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I believe that this passage will help us to see this metaphor of the church even with more clarity. And also Paul's role. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And this chapter is all about unity in the church. And how God has made himself one new man by uniting Jews and Gentiles. And the word says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul uses another metaphor of a building. This time he calls the church the, the household of God, and he says it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles preach Jesus. That's the foundation of the church. That is what we have received, the apostles' message about who Jesus is and what he has done for us and how we reunite with God or unite with God. And also the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets preached of a, a son of man that was coming. The prophets preached of a, a greater prophet, the law tells us, was called a prophet greater than Moses. They prepared the, the, the people's heart for this, for Jesus. So the foundation is built by the prophets and the apostles, but also we want to understand a, a visual that he uses. He says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this building. Back in ancient times, a building would be erected and there would be what's called a chief cornerstone. And that was a huge rock. That was a, a, a gigantic rock and it was called or known as a principal stone. It was solid. And the whole edifice was built around that stone. It was the most important stone or part of an edifice that was built. So the apostle is trying to give him this picture. He says, I came and I preached Jesus and I laid the foundation along with the other apostles and the other prophets. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is who the church is, is all about. He bought the church. He owns the church. He gives the church his direction. But then he goes on in Ephesians to say, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That the, the structure of the church, the structure of this building are the people of God. And God is knitting us together, growing us together in order that we would be a holy, a, a, a beautiful temple to the world. 
a temple that the world will see, a structure that the world will see and say, wow, look at these people, look at their God, look at the person who owns these people. And that's what God is doing in every local church. Every local church is a building. Every local church, metaphorically speaking, is a building that represents God in a community, that represents who he is, and that is on mission for him. Just like all of these buildings around us represent the one who owns the building, and the one who owns the building, and the people who come into the building, they do a work uh, according to uh, what the building was erected for. That's how the church is. We're owned by God. Jesus is the foundation, and we do a, a work. We gather together. We, we learn each other. We, we are in each other's lives in order that we may do the work of God. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians really quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. We'll look at the B clause. Paul goes on to say, and and someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul again is saying, I, I laid this foundation, this foundation was Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, Church of Corinth, you all are to be about Jesus. That's what the church is about. I pray that when uh, someone asks you about your church, that the, the thing that comes out of that conversation is that Forest Baptist Church is about Jesus. Forest Baptist Church is crazy about Jesus. Forest Baptist Church is about the mission of Jesus. See, the church of Corinth, they were no longer being careful about how they were building. When Paul was there, it was all about Jesus. When Apollos was there, we assumed that it was all about Jesus. Paul talks very, very highly about Apollos. He was one skilled in speech. He came right after Paul pastored Corinth. He came and he pastored. But now Paul says, according to this text, that apparently that there's someone else who is there building. There are other leaders there building. And he's writing this letter in order to warn those leaders and say, be careful how you build the church. Because this church was being built around other things than Jesus. They were starting to slowly ignore the chief cornerstone. This church was becoming about human wisdom. They were more fascinated with philosophy. Philosophy. Phileo, love. Philosophy, the love of wisdom. They were more impressed with the, the love of, of, of wisdom. Not godly wisdom, but the world's wisdom. The way the world thought. They, they put that on a pedestal. Not only that, they were impressed with human accomplishment. The church was no longer focusing on the gift, on the giver, but now they were all about personal gifts. And that's why Paul is writing and he's saying, listen, don't follow me. That's all they were saying. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow this person. He says, stop making me into a celebrity. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. But Jesus is the one that you want to be emphasizing. They also was about selfish ambition. This, this church was filled with jealousy and filled with strife. Anytime Jesus is not the center of a church's ministry, there will be chaos. Anytime we walk in these doors and we say and draw conclusions that don't line up with the Bible and what Jesus has to say, there will be destruction. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, its end is destruction. Human wisdom is not in line with God's wisdom. And a lot of times we think that the church should be doing things because it makes common sense or seems like the right thing to do. But guess what? Outside of God's spirit and outside of God's revelation, common sense isn't all that common. Sometimes God says some stuff to the church that the church may say, thinking about this in human terms, this doesn't make sense. Tithing and, and or giving freely to the Lord doesn't make sense. Uh, restorative discipline and holding people accountable doesn't make sense. That, that's not the way we love in the world. But, but that's the way God says love. That's the way God says love. 
See, we got to build the church on Jesus. Recent article by Essence Magazine, 72% of people polled said that when they come to church, no one has any business or any right to tell them how to live their life and hold them accountable. That's the that's churchgoers that was interviewed by that interview uh, African Americans. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. That's human wisdom. The church has to be built on Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, he gave us a picture of a man who built his his house on sand and a man who built his house on a rock. When a storm came, the Bible said, the man who built his house on sand, his house was destroyed, utterly taken away. And the man who built his house on a rock sustained. What what if that picture or that illustration, what did it point to? Jesus was saying, whoever hears my word and does not abide by it and does not live it is a person who is building their life on sand. When storms come, when tribulations come, that, that, that house, their life will fall apart because they're not on a sure foundation, they're not on a chief cornerstone. But it's the same way with the local body, with the local church. If we build this church on human philosophy or around celebrities or seeking our own selfish ambitions, when storms come, we are going to be divided. We are not going to be unified, and storms are going to come. Persecution can come from the outside. A recession can hit. That could be a a, a deep grief that hits the congregation. That could be a change of leadership. Some churches, when there's a change of leadership, they completely dismantle. And it's probably because the church wasn't building on Jesus. So that storm comes, and the church falls apart. I want to show you what Paul's main thrust is in this text. Look at verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has. So Paul goes on and he says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Uh, this is, is, is very interesting what, what Paul does here. He gives us kind of our, our, our big idea and, and what he really wants to nail home, which is this. He's saying that the individual members of the body of Christ must build our best for Jesus. As individual members, we want to make sure that we are giving our best to the construction of this church. He says, I've done my part, Corinth. Like a skilled master builder, I made sure that everything was in line, the gospel was preached with clarity, that I labored among you, I left, others have come, they're not taking care of what they have done, and now he says there's certain type of materials that a building can be built with. This is a metaphor. He says gold, silver, precious stones, and then there's another category, wood, hay, and straw. It's two different categories. The first category is a a category that uses strong, precious materials. The second category is a category of shabby, shoddy materials. What does this material represent? This material represents the belie- a believer's works, the deeds that a believer does, the things that we do for Jesus. Every person in here is contributing to the building of the church if you're a Christian. The question is, what type of materials are you using? 
every Christian, every member of Forest Baptist Church is on this construction site building a local movement, a, a local church to reach this community. The question is, what's in your hand? What materials are you using? Now, Paul's first application is probably to the leaders there that are building after he's left. And he's warning them, those who are influencing the church of Corinth, to be careful of what they're laying on the foundation. But he says here in this text, let each one, and if anyone, I believe that this application applies to everyone who is in the body of Christ. What are you contributing to the church? Now, there's a temptation to look at this list and then in our mind to kind of categorize stuff and say, well, if a person is a preacher, if they're a teacher, if they're up front, then they must be using gold as material. And maybe if a person is doing things behind the scene or in some type of hospitality ministry, they are using maybe straw. But that's not, that's not it. Paul doesn't go and start defining what is gold and what is straw. Paul is pointing to the quality of one's work and their obedience to what God has called them to do. He's pointing to their gifting. You can have a preacher who preaches every week and does a fantastic job every week and at the end of the day his preaching his ministry can be strong because it was done for the wrong motive with the wrong attitude without truly seeking the Lord so he may be highly gifted and that may be easy to him but he's not doing it for the right reason and only Lord knows what is in our hands and then you can have another person who's behind the scenes who's doing things for the local church, and theirs can be gold. Because maybe what they're doing is a sacrifice. You with me? So when we talk about these materials, we want to say, what kind of materials am I using? What am I offering up to God? The Bible says that the church's job, Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20, is to make disciples of the nation to make followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Our mission is to, to bring people to Jesus and those who are brought to Jesus to make sure they grow in maturity in Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we come. That's why we're here in Newburgh. It is to reach Newburgh, Petersburg, Louisville, and the nations. Okay? If someone is doing a work that adds no quality and no help to reaching that mission is strong. If someone is doing a work that is adding to that mission and helping to support that mission, it is gold. And that, that work could be being an extended care teacher. It could be coming down on next Saturday to help out as we have our singles conference to, to help keep the children in order that the singles would be discipled to look more like Jesus. So it's not necessarily what one is doing, it's answering the question, how is this helping us reach our mission? And in what way is it being done? I believe that God takes many things into factor when he calls a work a certain type of element, whether gold or straw. I, I believe that his mind can... can puts together so many different factors that we can't really begin to guess. I think that's why Paul doesn't even go into it. But I think when we look at the Psalms of the Scripture and we ask ourselves, what kind of work am I doing? What kind of materials am I using for God? That we, we can ask ourselves, well, what's my motives for what I do? What's your motive as you serve the local church? And praise God for you serving the local church. But what's your motive? Is your motive to be seen? Is it to be complimented? Is it to fulfill some insecurity in your heart? Or is it to glorify God? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when it talks about our works, it says that, that God, that we do good works in order to glorify our God in heaven. So the ultimate 
work or goal of each of our works is to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to show off the intricate works of God, to show off his beauty. Not to make him beautiful, he's already beautiful, but to reveal his beauty to the world. Our works should point to him. Is that motive to, some people motive to serve in the local church is just so that they can say, I, I'm, I'm, this, I'm a good person. And at the end of the night, at the end of the day, that's why you come to church on Sunday, so that at the end of the day you can say, I'm a good person, or I've tried. God considers motive. God considers attitude. What's my attitude as I'm building? I have a nasty attitude when I'm building? When I serve, is it an attitude of air that's coming off like I'm, I'm better than everyone else or I really don't want to be here? What about purity? God factors in purity. In fact, in this text, he, he points us, he calls us the, the holy temple of the Lord. God says, I'm holy, so, so you ought to be holy. So you can have a person that's up front, that's leading, that's doing great things, but if in the private nooks of their heart there is impurity, if there's no integrity when no one is around, all that they are doing, and it could be a lot, and it could be gold to the world, is straw. So it may be contributing to the mission, but one day it will be revealed as straw. Prayerfulness. As I work, am I praying? Sacrifice. The Bible says that we are to be a living sacrifice for the Lord. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing unto the Lord. God takes all of these things and many more, and he says, he looks at our works and he begins to say, this is gold, this is silver, this is precious stones, this is wood, this is hay, this is straw. If you told me that you wanted to expand your home, and you wanted to, to build onto your home, and I got a construction crew, and we showed up, and you said, hey, yeah, this is the back area, you want to expand it, and you look at what we had, and we begin to move over there, and all of a sudden we're putting together clay and straw. I say, what in the world are you using? Even if it holds up, I don't want my home to look like that. It's the same way with the local church. We are a building, we are a picture to the world. And we are representing a holy God. We are representing a righteous God, a loving God, a just God, an awesome God, the God that we sung about, a God that was willing to allow his son to die in our place in order that we would have life in him, a God that promises us a, a, a rich future in him. So why are we bringing him straw? You know, if you go to Chicago and go downtown, you'll see many beautiful buildings. This summer, uh, I got to see the Trump Tower for the first time in person, which was built by Donald Trump. Didn't ha get to go inside the building, but just by looking at the building, immediately, one can conclude what that person who owned the building and who oversaw the building project was all about. It's majestic. It's grand. It's luxurious. Automatically, I know there's a certain type of people, person that will not be able to stay there. And there's a certain type of person that he is building this building with in mind. And it's the same way in the local church. We, as we serve the Lord, as we work, as we pray, as we read, as we come to Bible study and Sunday school, we are offering bricks. We are offering materials for this local church. And that is what is represented to this community and to this city, to the people who visit. Because those materials are going to come out in our conversation. They're going to come out in our relationships. 
They're going to come out in our worldview, and people will be able to see this gold and say, wow. And then look at their God, our God, and glorify him. And say, he's a God of gold. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of purity. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. Look at the next verse, verse 13. And this is why what we use is important. What we use is important because one day our work will be inspected. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Look at what he says. One day, every single work that we have done, he says, a day is coming. It will be made known. Look at what he says, verse 13. It will become manifest, and it will become disclosed. What is the day that Paul is talking about? The day is, a, uh, is, is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. From the Old Testament to the New, there is a majestic picture of an awesome and yet awful day where Jesus will return and he will judge the works of everyone who lives. Everyone who lives, works, will be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. In fact, I'll go up to verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One day, Revelation chapter 19 says, Jesus is going to come back, and he is coming back to wage war. And there's going to be two types of people, Matthew chapter 25, goats and sheep. Sheep are those who belong to him, who, hear, who heard his voice and who lived a life seeking to obey and please him. Goats are those who are without him. They may have been religious, but they never allowed him to transform their heart. One day, there's going to be a great judgment. Some people say that there's going to be multiple judgments, up to three judgments. Some people say there's going to be one great judgment. I'm one who falls on a one great judgment, but I want to give you another picture of this. Revelation chapter 20. Give you a picture of the, the day of judgment. Revelation chapter 20. Day of judgment. Verse 11 through 15. The judgment seat of Christ. All of our works will be manifest. In fact, Matthew chapter 12, verse 26, also points to the day of judgment. You can write this down. Let me tell you how, how much God is going to judge our deeds. The Bible says that every idle word and every word that we have ever spoken will come under the scrutiny of Jesus. How we talk to our children when no one was around. How we talk to our, our girlfriends. How we talked about our girlfriends. How we talked about our friends. How we talked about our church members, how we talked about our pastors. God is clear to let us know in order so that we can live with fear and trembling before him. He lets us know that one day we will be held accountable. Verse 11. I know it's tight, but it's right. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. That's amazing. 
says, Jesus comes, he sees his white throne, and the earth and the sky fled away. In other words, he was so, this picture was so majestic and so mighty that John couldn't even explain. He said, it's as if everything else went away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. It means people who had died, and maybe their bodies weren't found. Maybe their bodies was in a sea. This is a picture of everyone who had died before the return of Jesus, being given life, and now standing before him. Billions and billions and billions and billions of people somehow crowded and all seeing Jesus at the same time. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown away into the lake of fire. So on that day of judgment, those who are not in Christ are going to be judged and sent to hell. It means those who have never looked upon the cross and who believed in Jesus by faith. And then those who are, are in Christ, the church, we're going to stand before Jesus, not as those who are condemned, but as servants, as workers. And we are going to stand before him, and our works are going to come before him, and what we had been using, what we had been building with, is either going to be accepted as precious, or seen as shabby. And the Bible says that all of our works are going to go through the fire. And whatever is a precious stone, when it goes through the fire, it's not going to burn up. It's not going to be consumed. It's going to remain, and we will be rewarded for that. But whatever was shabby is going to go through the fire. Wood burns in fire. Straw burns in fire. Hay burns in fire. Now, what's this fire? Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, describes Jesus, and it says that Jesus has eyes like fire. Metaphorically speaking, I believe that this is Jesus' x-ray vision. As he surveys the whole earth and everyone who has ever been there, his x-ray vision goes and pierces our hearts, and at a moment we know whether or not what we have been doing on this earth whether or not it was for his glory or selfish ambition, whether what we had been doing on this earth was done with sacrifice, was done with pure motives, was done in a way to please him, or was done for some other reason, maybe religion and show. Not only that, the book of life will open up and will speak to us. So that's my question. What are you building with, Christian? Are you building with straw or are you building with gold? God doesn't want us to just strive for heaven. God wants us to strive for holiness. God doesn't just want to give us heaven. He wants, as Christians, we should be pursuing holiness. God has called us to be set aside from the world, to look different for the world, to be on a specific mission for him. If God wanted us to just have heaven, he would have saved us and transported us right away. But God saved us in order that we will be holy, in order that we will reach the lost and help each other to look more like Jesus. Look at your Bibles. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So Paul is trying to motivate him. He's saying, listen, offer God your best because God has a reward for those who offer him their best. 
pray like David, Lord, search my heart. Help me to see why I'm doing what I'm doing and help me to do what you've called me to do for your glory. Help me to live sacrificially just as Jesus lived sacrificially for me. The Bible talks a lot about, doesn't talk, it talks about rewards, but it doesn't give us specific on what those rewards, what those rewards would be. In Matthew chapter uh, 6, we learn about how we are called to lay up our treasures in heaven, not on this earth. Everything we're doing right now is going into uh, the first national bank of heaven. Your good works that you do for God's glory is going to heaven. There's an account being kept. And he said, what the Bible is saying, live in light of that day. We don't live in light of that day. We are so now driven. So now driven. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, last verse. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So all of our works and all of our... Everything we do, we do it by faith, believing that he exists. And I declare that some of us, we will leave today, and our lives will be exactly the same, and we will offer up the same straw, if that, because really we don't believe that God exists. Really, we don't believe in our hearts of hearts that God is going to come back and there's going to be a great day of judgment. We believe in religion. We believe in parts of the Bible. We believe in being happy and singing about what Jesus has done for us. But it's not, it, it's not a, a deep, integrity, content-filled belief. It is a shallow, religious, we've always done it this way, belief. And as a pastor, that burdens me because the Bible says that one day, I will, along with these other men, we will stand before God and give an account on what we said and how we preached to you. And that's why we preach, by going through a book of the Bible and not picking and choosing what we want to speak from week to week. Because we want the Bible to speak to you, and we want God to speak for himself. Because that great and terrible day is coming. The Bible says he rewards those who diligently seek him. <laughs> that's a promise. Those who diligently seek him will be rewarded. Those who come to him and says, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, what you have done for me causes me to want to do for you. Not for salvation, but from salvation. Those will be rewarded. See, we don't work. We don't work for our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. No, we work from our salvation. We don't work in order that we would be saved. We work because we believe that God has saved us, that he has forgiven us for our sins, that he has given us new life, that we are now in Christ, a part of his body, a part of his building. So my motivation is not so that one day when I stand before God, I will wonder whether or not I'm in. No, I work because I know I'm in, and I know I don't deserve to be in. I know what I used to be. I know what I can sometimes still be, but I know who he is. He's faithful to me. How can I not obey him? How can I not praise him? I don't know about you. I don't want to just make it into heaven. I want to make it into heaven with Jesus seeing me, with a smile on his face, with his eyes going through my heart and saying, son, that's not straw. That's not hay. That's not wood. That's a precious stone. Faithful servant. Well done. I want him to crown me with a, a crown of righteousness, with a crown of royalty, with a crown of glory. Not so that I can all of a sudden become selfish and say, look at the crowns that I have, but so that I can look at him and say, this all belongs to you. Because if it was not for your grace, the Bible says that the elders in heaven, when they saw the Lamb of God, they took off his crown. 
cry, their crowns, and they threw it at his feet. I like it. I like that image. They, they got mad at themselves that they were just sitting up there with crowns on their head like they did something. Because in light of what Jesus has done for us, the little bit that I offer really is not much, but I'm pleased to do whatever he tells me to do because he's all that. He deserves my worship. He deserves my praise. He deserves my mind to think deeply and intently about him. He deserves for me to meditate and memorize his scriptures. He deserves for me to come sacrificially to Bible study in order that we can build a church together. He deserves for me to come sacrificially to Sunday school so I can learn and build with others. He deserves for me to read other literature outside of the Bible. He deserves for me to sacrifice one of my seven nights of watching TV in order that I can draw near to him. He deserves for me to tell my neighbor and tell my coworker how good he's been to me. He's been so good to me. When I think about all that he's done for me, when I think about how he regulates my mind, when I think about how he gave me a bed to sleep in, when I think about how he gave me a new family in Christ, when I think about how he protects me, how he keeps me, how he loves me, how he forgives me, when I think about how he encouraged me, I can't help but to lift up holy hands and say, God, I want to give you my best because you gave me your best on Calvary. You gave me your best in the heat of the day. You gave me your best. Nails in your arms. You gave me your best. Lifted up on an old rugged cross. You gave me your best. And you died for me. For me. Silly on me. Mean on me. Messed up on me. Trifling on me. And then you rose with all power in your hands. The power to transform the power to make alive, the power to deliver. He's all right. I said, 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 he's all right. So what are you building with? What's in your hands? What's in your heart? Because what's in your hands is a reflection of what's in your heart. What's in your hands is a reflection of what's in your heart. And what's in your heart is a reflection of what's in your head. Is it human wisdom or God's wisdom? Father, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.